0: testament reading comes from genesis 6 and i'll read verses 11 through 13 now the earth was corrupt in god's sight and the earth was filled with violence and god saw the earth and behold it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth and god said to noah i have determined to make an end to all flesh for the earth is filled with violence through them behold i shall destroy them with the earth Our New Testament reading is from Revelation, chapter 7, 9 through 12. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God. Who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their face before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessings and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And our sermon text today, still in the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 8, 20 through 32. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. Or else if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your house. And the house of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also on the ground in which they stand. But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow the shine shall happen, and the Lord did so. There came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh's and into his servant's house. Throughout all the land of Egypt, the land was ruined by the swarms of flies. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Go sacrifice to your God within this land. But Moses said, it would not be right to do so, for the offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? We must go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to our Lord our God, as he tells us. So Pharaoh said, I will let you go sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, only you must not go very far away. Plead for me. Then Moses said, behold, I am going out from you. And I will plead with the Lord that the swarm of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants and from his people. Only let not Pharaoh cheat again by not letting the people go to sacrifice by the Lord. So Moses went out from the Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord. And the Lord did as Moses asked and removed the swarm of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants and from his people. Not one remained. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. All right, so last week, lice. All right, we just recovered from that. And now we get flies. Great. Uh, so we're continuing our study of the book of Exodus. Uh, but before we get into the text, I'm going to tell a story. The year was 1978. And it was the early years of video games. All of a sudden, all the kids look up. Wow, this sermon's going to be great. Uh, so there was A programmer at Atari named Warren Robinette. He was working on a whole new concept for a video game called Adventure. In Adventure, players would explore castles and fight dragons while seeking a magical chalice. Now that doesn't seem too revolutionary to us now, but back then that was very different from every other video game out there. But during the development of this game Adventure, there was a new CEO of Atari and he made a change. From now on, individual developers would no longer receive credit for the games they designed. So Warren Robinette was understandably unhappy with this decision as he had been spending a lot of his time pouring his heart and soul into this game. Uh, He would go on to finish Adventure, but he would leave Atari soon after. But before he did so, he left behind a secret. So in one of the game's castles, there is a random gray dot. And if a player picks up that dot and moved it to a specific place in the castle, a hidden message was displayed on the screen that read, Created by Warren Robinette. Stick it to those Atari executives. (laughs) And a year after the game was released, a teenage boy found the message and uh, wrote to Atari. The Atari executives were angry, but it turns out the message was actually super popular among gaming fans and the director of software development at Atari suggested that they encourage they encourage the inclusion of such messages in future games and he called them, anybody know? Easter eggs Easter eggs, that's right, good job. Uh, Because you hunt for them, right? Now, of course, we know Easter eggs are pretty ubiquitous, as evidenced by the fact that people knew what I was talking about. And we find them in video games as well as all sorts of other media. Uh, People love them because it's fun to solve a puzzle uh, and uh, you kind of feel connected. You kind of feel like a superior fan. Uh, you've recognized something because of your familiarity with the material, and uh, you know it proves you're you're a real fan. You're in like an elite group. Now, today, what I want to argue is that the readers of Exodus also like the Easter eggs, uh, and as we study the uh, sermon text today, I'm going to point out two Easter eggs that are hidden in this text. And I think by recognizing these Easter eggs, we will gain an understanding of what is going on on what is seemingly a pretty straightforward narrative account of this fourth sign. Now, again, I want to remind everyone as we work through these, these, uh, what are traditionally known as the 10 plagues of Egypt, the approach that we're taking to our study. I am purposely not using the word plagues. Instead, I'm using the word signs. I do that because that's actually what the text uses. That's what Exodus uses. It actually doesn't use the word plagues. It uses the first signs. And I think this is important because the sin signs are actually revealing something to us about God, about Yahweh. And this is consistent with the book of Exodus as a whole. The book of Exodus is telling us one of the major themes of Exodus is, is who is God? Who is this Yahweh? Uh, Remember when uh, Moses first asked the Pharaoh to let his people go uh, because Yahweh uh, demands it. uh, (laughs) Pharaoh says, who is this Yahweh? I do not know him. And so the rest of Exodus is an attempt to let us know who Yahweh is. And so... Uh, This goes all the way back from the burning bush. Uh, God had told the Israelite ancestors that they knew God, but they only knew him in a limited way. But now their generation will experience God in a much fuller way. Now we've already studied three signs, uh, and in them we saw that the first sign, uh, that the point was that Yahweh was looking past the power and achievement of Egypt and rather seeing the victims of Egypt, the people who had been exploited. In the second sign, we learned the awesome power of Yahweh's abundance. Uh, And last week, we looked at the sign of the lice, uh, you know, the itchiest sermon of the year, and saw how this sign illustrated Yahweh's determination to fulfill his promise. This week, we are going to look at what is traditionally known as the uh, plague or sign of the flies. And as I've mentioned before, these signs are organized into three groups. There's kind of uh, three triads in which the first, second, and third member of each group share similarities. And so since this is the fourth sign. This is the, the, is the first sign of the second group, the second cycle. And here we find that just like the first sign, the changing of the water into blood, there's a forewarning. The event takes place in the morning. Moses specifically is said to take a stand. Moses and Aaron are both involved. And the purpose of the sign is specifically stated so that you may know that I am Yahweh. And the sign ends with Pharaoh's heart hardened. Now... There is one new feature of this sign that's introduced. So that pattern kind of persists, but something new has been added here. Whereas the previous signs had affected the whole land of Egypt, this sign only affects the Egyptians. Our text specifically notes that the land of Goshen, where the Israelites live, do not experience this sign. And from now on, this differentiation between the Egyptian and Israelites will be a consistent feature of the signs. Now. Just as with last week's sign, it's really difficult to know what creature we are dealing with. Like like I've told you before, anytime you try to translate from Hebrew an animal or a plant, you almost never are going to be sure. You have to accept some sort of uh, ambiguity there. So the Hebrew word here is a rove, and of course its meaning is unsure. The word only occurs in Exodus when it's talking about this sign. And a couple of uh, places in the Psalms which are referring back to this story. Uh, The Septuagint, which is the early Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, translates it as flies. And so that's why most of the time our translations use the word flies. Now, we do know that the Egyptians uh, uh, had this, uh, uh, there was a fly called the dog fly. Uh, We know this from uh, several ancient sources. The dogfly feeds on the blood of various animals, including cats, dogs, and hyenas. And it will bite humans, and it's quite painful and causes skin irritation. So that seems like just as good a candidate as any. But other insects have been suggested, the gadfly, the dung beetle. Uh, But because of the Septuagint translate choosing flies, that's where most of uh, us come down to. But it's still quite debated. Now here's the weird thing about this word. Uh, The word comes from a Hebrew root that means mixture. Mixture, okay, that's important. Uh, Now this led early Jewish scholars when they read this to ask a mixture of what? And so, one suggestion was it was a mixture of insects like hornets and mosquitoes, or some things like spiders and scorpions. I know those are arachnids. Okay, but our modern translations usually follow uh, our modern translations usually kind of follow this train of thought that is sometime something in the insect and arachnid world, and uh, opt for the word swarm. So you may notice uh, in your text it says something about swarm. But there's another idea that's actually pretty prominent out there, and it's actually pretty cool. I mean, it's not as cool as a giant frog, but still pretty cool. So some ancient Jewish commentators believe that the mixture is a mixture of wild animals, like lions and bears and wolves and leopards. And so a lot of Jewish com- com- commentaries, you'll see references to the plague of wild animals. Actually, there's a, a source I was using that, that, that called about that, or, referred to this as the plague of the wild animals so wild animals is pretty awesome but it's 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 actually not the most awesome though uh one jewish sage uh notes that the similarity of the word "arove" to evening and he concludes that they this is actually referring to these wolf creatures who came and attack at night so werewolves basically yeah so that's awesome. Uh, but sadly, a swarm of a variety of insects seems the most likely. So I don't think we can uh, say werewolves. But uh, anyway, a swarm uh, seems like the best translation. Now, whether the swarm was a pack of hyenas or flies, what we are told is that the land of Egypt was ruined by the swarm. Uh, Pharaoh gives in, but really not all that much. Uh, Moses had originally requested the Israelites make a three-days journey to the wilderness to make sacrifices. And Pharaoh offers to let them make sacrifices, but not a three days away in Egypt. Pharaoh thinks that Yahweh is basically like all the other gods. All he needs to do is be appeased. And so Pharaoh decides he can negotiate with Moses to try and save face and walk away Ending the swarm and making the least amount of concessions possible to the Israelites. But then Moses explains that the sacrificial uh, practices of the Israelites will be offensive to the Egyptians. And there's several possibilities as to why this may be. Egyptians didn't burn their sacrifices the way uh, Israelites did. Uh, instead, the sacrifices were consumed by the priest. Uh, another possibility is that bulls were sacrificed Uh by the uh, Israelites and were considered sacred in Egypt. Uh, they were identified with the god Hathor. Uh, you know, if you know anything about Egyptian uh, mythology or practices, the Apis bull. okay? So that would have been bad. Also, um, they detested sheep and goats, okay? Egyptians did not like sheep and goats. They considered them dirty. They identified them with uh, the nomadic tribes that were, you know, kind of like the barbaric, uncultured people, the savages or whatnot that lived outside of Egypt and uh, who were usually shepherds. Now, we're not really sure what the issue was, but apparently it was a problem enough that uh, Pharaoh does conceive Moses' point. And so Pharaoh eventually relents and allows the Israelites to go to the wilderness to make sacrifices. Of course, Pharaoh cannot resist adding, just don't go too far in the wilderness. However, uh, as we will see uh, over and over again, as soon as the uh, threat is removed, Pharaoh changes course, still unconvinced of Yahweh's overwhelming power. Now, If you remember a few weeks ago, I made a big deal that the familiar demand that Moses issues to Pharaoh, let my people go, is actually better translated, send my people away. And the reason I make that distinction is that it's not enough for the people to be free. God could easily have uh, free the Israelites any way he wanted. The point of the exodus, though, is not just to free the Israelites, but for Pharaoh and the entire Egyptian religious system to be taken down. The entire thought system that supported the enslavement of the Israelites is being challenged here. And the Egyptians need to understand that they are not dealing with just another powerful deity, but actually the one true God creator of the universe, Yahweh, And Yahweh does not give humans power so they can do whatever they want, the way Pharaoh sees it. So here we see Pharaoh give in, but he only does so on the basis of expediency. It's clear Pharaoh is not yet convinced of the true nature of Yahweh. And so Pharaoh hardens his heart. And as we know, he sets himself up to be educated by another series of signs. Now... As I said, on the face of it, this narrative seems really straightforward. Uh, And it seems like we don't learn a whole lot about Yahweh. If these signs are supposed to be revealing Yahweh, then what do we learn uh, from a swarm of flies or lions or werewolves or whatever they are? So that's where the Easter eggs come in. So there are two Easter eggs hidden in this uh, text, and I think they're pretty revealing. The first Easter egg I want to discuss is in verse 24. So if you look at 24, here are the effects of the swarmer described. And the text states that in all the land of Egypt, the land was ruined by reason of the flies. And what I want us to do is I want to look at this word ruin, which in Hebrew is shahat, okay? Ruin is a pretty good translation for shahat. You could also think of it as spoiled, decayed, corrupted, rotted, something like that. But here's the thing about shahat. We find it used in two very specific instances in Genesis. Now, as we know, Kate, are you ready? As we know, if we want to understand Egypt, where do we have to do? Genesis, right? We have to look at Genesis. So what are the two instances where shahad is used in, in Genesis? Well, they're two pretty famous ones. The first instance comes from our sermon text uh, that we read before uh, we started the sermon. Uh, from Genesis six eleven, Genesis six eleven. This is right before the flood, uh, the Noah's famous flood. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And the word corrupt here is that word shahat. And in response to this state of affairs, it says that God sent the flood to destroy the earth. And again, the word destroy here is actually shahat. So, in other words, the world is ruined. And God sent the flood to ruin it. Now, the second instance is found in Genesis 18 and 19, which is the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. The outcry from Sodom and Gomorrah was so great that God had to destroy it. And notice this word outcry. Uh, That sounds very familiar to the story of Cain and Abel. You know, so, so Cain murders his brother Abel, and the blood of his brother cries out from the ground. That's what God hears. And earlier we had connected this crying out of the blood to uh, Yahweh turning the Nile into blood. And we had made the point that, you know, here what this text is trying to tell us is that Yahweh hears the voice, the cry of the victims. Genesis 19 then goes on to describe a horrifying scene about how bad things were in Sodom and Gomorrah and ends with God destroying it. And again, the word for destroy here is shahat. So my point is that in both instances in Genesis, shahat is used in conjunction with God's judgment. And I think it's important to talk about judgment for a minute. In both these cases, it's not just God getting angry because humans are breaking a few rules. In both these stories, what we have is actually something pretty horrifying. We have humans using violence to gain power and exploiting or oppressing the weak. And this cycle continues to the point when only the violent are left. The entire world is ruled by this principle of might makes right. Before the flood, Genesis tells us that Yahweh saw that the wickedness of humans was great in the earth. And that every intention of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continuously. It's a really bad state of affairs. I mean, like the text is going to great lengths to tell us how bad things were. You know, if you were like a good person, you had no choice. Uh, Before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, famously, Abraham bargains with God. You know, can you save the city if only 10 people, 10 righteous people are left? And of course, God finds none because the corruption of Sodom and Gomorrah was that great. There were no righteous people left. So in both of these stories, God's judgment is a necessary correction to a world where power has suppressed the ability for anyone, for society to flourish. For the weak, the downtrodden, the exploited, the oppressed, people like the Israelite slaves, God's judgment then is not something to be feared. It's actually something to be welcomed. It's to be long form. It's a, it's a correction to the a terrible state of affairs. So... What we learn, first of all, in this story, is in, in the sign of the swarm, is that Yahweh is a God who judges. Now, the Egyptians actually had a value system. They weren't like these like, immoral, terrible people. Uh, you know, we, we, we find texts over and over that, that, just like us, they thought things like theft and murder were wrong. They believed that the hungry should be fed and that the strong shouldn't just be able to, to do what they wanted to to the, the weak. They believed that business dealing should be honest. And that was part of their concept of ma'at. You know, we've talked about that, this idea that Egyptian society was organized around like a a harmony that they called ma'at. And it was the pharaoh's responsibility to enforce that harmony. However, what happens if the pharaoh failed to do so? That was always the question. What happens if the powerful simply ignored that? And what we learn here is that Yahweh is a God who brings judgment to the powerful. Yahweh cares about his people and creation and he will not allow violence and might to have the last word. He will bring ruin to those who seek ruin. And so we learn from the first sign that Yahweh hears and sees the oppressed. But in this sign, we learn that Yahweh also acts. So that's our first Easter egg. Now, I want to point out one other word. As I said earlier, we don't really know the identity of the creature in this sign. You know, if it's flies or werewolves or whatever. But what we do know is that the word means mixture. Now, here's something cool I bet you all didn't know about the Exodus, okay? We all know the story about the Exodus, right? You've heard this like for years. It's great. It makes like great kids' Bible story books. And so this is like, if we don't know anything else, it even makes the, you can even make a movie out of it, right? There's uh, lots of movies, Prince of Egypt, you know, so on. Now, here's what you might not remember about this story. Turn to, if you look at Exodus chapter 12, So Exodus chapter 12 takes place, uh, this is after Passover, this is after the death of the firstborn, when Pharaoh finally releases the people. Now if you look at verse 37, it says, and the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sukkoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. So all the Israelites are leaving Egypt, they're, they're traveling, we're given an itinerary of their travel. But then look at verse 38. What does it say? It says a mixed multitude also went up with them. Did you catch that? Have you ever heard about this before? It wasn't just the Israelites that left Egypt during the Exodus. It was actually a mixed multitude. Now guess what? The word for mixed here is this same word that's used for swarm. And so what I'm suggesting is that in this story, we have a bit of foreshadowing here. This swarm is anticipating an important point about the Exodus. A mixed multitude means that it wasn't just the Israelites that left Egypt in the Exodus. So who else went with the Israelites? We don't know, but maybe other nomadic tribes residing in Egypt, foreign immigrants, maybe other Egyptians. We don't know. But what we do know is that it wasn't just Israelites. And I think that is a remarkable fact because think about it. This is the founding story of Israel. You know, this is still told thousands of years today, every year. Uh, You know, the the descendants of the Israelites sit down at the Seder and tell this story. And it's not just uh, ethnic Israelites that uh, took part in this. And this would have been unheard of in the ancient world. What we have from the very start of Israel's history is a mixture And, you know, the thing about that is it's sort of surprising because that's not like really how human beings work. But it shouldn't be surprising if we've been following the story of Genesis all along. Because if we actually go back to Abraham, Abraham, of course, the famous ancestor of the Israelites. In Genesis 12, when Abraham is called out, he's called out not just for blessing, he's also called out so that all the nations of the earth would be blessed by him. Egypt had actually already experienced this blessing in the story of Joseph. And now we see this blessing further developing as other groups besides Israel join with them in leaving the oppressive Pharaoh and journeying to the promised land. Ethnicity is not the defining characteristic here. What is it's believing in Yahweh. It's believing in who he is. It's believing his identity and becoming part of that program. Now, what's a really churchy word that uh, kind of means that? Faith. Faith, okay? So, you know, when Paul is talking about salvation by faith in the New Testament, he didn't get that out of thin air. That's been part of the DNA of, of salvation, of exodus of Israel from the very beginning. Now, as our story continues, the prophets look ahead to a time when God's glory would extend beyond the nations of Israel. Isaiah says, I think Isaiah says it's best, so I'm going to use that as an example. It is too small a thing that Israel should be the servant of Yahweh alone. Instead, God says that he will make Israel a light for the nations that his salvation may reach the end of the earth. And all of this, of course, leads to Paul's famous statement that there, which he actually does, he actually says in not only in Galatians, but also in Colossians, there is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, all are one in Christ Jesus. Now, I think it's significant that this story in Exodus of judgment leading to diversity uh, that we find in the sign of the swarm actually recurs in several stories in the Bible. The basic outline is there's violence and power rule the world. God sends judgment, and what comes out of it is diversity. Uh, Think about it. The story of Noah. What happens? You know, it looks like everybody's terrible. God saves Noah and his family. Noah has three sons, and what do we have? We have an account of the genealogy of these three sons which leads to like every nation of the earth that was known by those people at that time. Think about also the story of the Tower of Babel. You know, at Babel, humans, rather than filling the earth as commanded, centralized, and they build a tower. And God judges the tower. And what comes out of that? Multiple languages. In the story of the Bible, there's these attempts at centralization as humans strive for power. And no doubt this centralization is established by oppression that is enforced by violence. And the result is God's judgment and the outcome is diversity. Humans seem to have this tendency toward empire, to centralization, to hierarchy that is necessarily enforced by power and oppression. The book of Daniel talks about this. It looks at these attempts and he describes them as monstrous beasts looks at the empires of the world and compares them to different, these different monsters. In the New Testament, it's the Roman imperial ideology that corrupts Israel's leaders in the gospel and what Paul rails against in his letters. In Revelation, we actually see all of these strands brought together as God judges the symbols of empire in language very similar to the plagues of Exodus. Overthrowing power, money, and sex symbolizing by the beast and the whore of Babylon. And what is the result? Well, it's what Revelation tells us. And I looked and behold a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all the tribes and people and languages standing before the throne and the land. Do You see the pain there that the writer of Revelation has gone to to uh, point out the diversity, the mixed multitude, just like the swarm. So what I'm proposing to you that is, is the story of the Bible is a story of God's judgment. God's judgment is important. However, the judgment's not simply how we is not usually how we think about it. And it's very simplistic terms of punishment. Just as these ten signs aren't simply punishments, God's judgments are about freedom. It's about bringing freedom to those who are oppressed. Freedom for humans to live as God intended. Israel was supposed to multiply and spread out. Pharaoh was trying to stop that. And that wasn't the way God intended. Mixed, diverse, and flourishing people freed from violence and oppression of those who would only accumulate power and wealth for themselves is the enemy. And that is the hope to all those who are downtrodden and beaten. It's the message Jesus preaches at the Sermon on the Mount. And it should also be our guiding vision as we seek to be those who do justice in the world as the hands and feet of Christ.